Here we are, another, another Easter, celebrating the risen Lord and the generosity of God in sending us his son, Jesus. Sometimes we forget about the generosity of the Father. And, that, and when we pray to him, we begin to, to beg him for the things we're asking him for, things we need. Because we forget what a generous God that he is, how he loves to give good gifts to his children. I was reminded during worship of Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Amen. The generosity of God. As I was pondering uh, Easter message and coming together as the body uh, this morning, I've had a few weeks to think about it. We've had other people speaking and sharing in the church. In my own personal life, I had uh, a worship, uh, a little bit of a worship revival for myself, where uh, the old worship music I was singing just wasn't cutting it. It wasn't getting through into a place where the words I was singing were, were connecting me with God in the way that I, I needed. And I, I stumbled upon a gospel group, gospel singing. And I just absolutely love this, this group. And I sent it to all my friends. I play it in my house uh, with my wife. It drives her crazy. I don't think she likes it as much as I do. But something about gospel music, it's just, uh, it's just so hopeful. And it has such a reliance on the generosity of God and an expectation that God's going to come through. It reminds me of that verse in Romans 8.32. If he gave us Christ, didn't spare his own son, how much more will he, along with him, give us all things? And the words of the song that really knocked my socks off as far as uh, worship goes and what really brought me through, here, listen to this verse. In the midst of all you're going through, he is our champion. Just trust in God, he'll fight for you. He is our champion. Just call his name, he's right on time. He is our champion. He's never lost. You'll be just fine. He is our champion. He conquered the grave, defeated sin. He is our champion. He'll never lose. He'll always win. He is our champion. He's the undisputed champion. He is our champion. Every battle that he's ever fought, he's won. He is our champion. Woo. Woo. I, I couldn't read it anymore. Believe it or not, not planned. I'm just having to be singing in the shower quite a bit. <laughs> but what, what an interesting concept to, to sing and repeat to yourself, to say to your own soul when you're in a lull in your, in your worship life, when you are in a lull in your relationship with God, when you're going through depression, when you're going through difficult times in your life where everything seems out of control. We're in the middle of, of uh, selling a house and buying a house, something I never planned on doing. And it feels so insecure and crazy, and there's so much that needs to be done. And at the end of the day, I know that what's going to happen is we're going to throw all of our money up in the air, and everyone's going to take it, and then we're going to be in the new house. But this song, you know, in the midst of all you're going through, he is our champion. If God did not spare his son, how much more will he, um, how much more will he give us all things? He is for us. He is in our corner as his children. He is our champion. 
So this idea of, of Jesus being the champion and championing for me and championing for our church and championing for the people I love and even championing for people that don't know him yet, it's been on my heart. And as I've thought about Easter morning, uh, I thought, I want to preach about Jesus as champion. I want to preach about this. I want to think about this. And the way that God led me to, to, to look at this scripturally is uh, from the story of David and Goliath. Just an unusual topic for, for a Sunday morning on Easter. But today, we're going, to, we're going to ask the question, you know, what is the significance of Jesus rising from the dead? What does his resurrection mean? What does it mean for Jesus to be our champion uh, through this lens of David and Goliath? In 1 Corinthians 15.4, Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. So if that's the case, then why? Um, then why is the resurrection so important? So David and Goliath, as we all know, it's a Sunday school classic. It's a story that most people know, even in the culture that we live in. We talk about it metaphorically, but it's a literal story that happened uh, in history. But we talk about facing giants. We talk about um, coming and trusting God in weakness. And the lesson we usually draw from this story in our Sunday schools is be brave Stand up for God, and he will make a miracle happen. And those are all good, those are all good lessons about living and walking in faith. You know, Dan, um, David was a man who honored God. But the story of David and Goliath is much more than a story about simple bravery. It's much more of a story, when you look at it closely, about strategy. Not a story about bravery as much as it is a story about strategy. About God's preferred strategy when dealing with evil. And in this story, we'll see the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection in a new light this morning. The light of all that God has done before this time and what he will do in the future. So we're going to catch a glimpse as we look closely into the story of God and God's ways, the ways that God works in the world. This connection between Jesus and David is not something pulled out of the the clear blue sky. There are striking similarities between Jesus and King David. For one thing, Jesus, we hear at Christmas time, is the son of David. You know, it says in Matthew many times, Jesus is the son of David. In the other Gospels, he's also called the son of David. He actually is a relative of King David. And this, uh, there's this idea through Scripture that what King David, the, the, the earthly king, did what he accomplished, Jesus brings to its completion. He's the ultimate manifestation of this righteous, wise king like David. In 1 Samuel 16, looking at these similarities between Jesus and David, um, David is anointed as the new king by the prophet Samuel. And right off the bat, uh, David was an unlikely choice. All the brothers were brought before Samuel, God's prophet, who had the power to anoint the new king. All the brothers were strong, good-looking, king-like guys. But David is the one that's chosen by Samuel as God's anointed. Smaller. He didn't look imposing like his brothers did. And we get this classic sentence from God in 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height. Do not consider these things. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. 
People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Even this sentence is a glimpse into God's ways, into how God thinks about the world. God sees things differently than we do. We see a weak, perhaps naive young man in David, and God sees his future champion. This, this description of David, you know, um, someone who didn't really turn many heads when it came to uh, leadership, is reminiscent of how Christ is described in Isaiah 53, 2 and 3. This is something that people are often surprised by. But listen to this description of Jesus Christ given by Isaiah. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Contrary to the pictures we've seen and, and the artistic expressions over the years of Jesus, Jesus was not someone physically, if you looked at him, that you would pick up out of a crowd and say, look, there's God's champion. Much like David, uh, we would overlook Jesus as well. He, there was nothing in his, in his appearance that we'd be attracted to him as a great leader, as a great champion for God. Because God looks at the heart, not the outward appearance of things, God works in a strategic way to bring about his, um, his purposes. The list of similarities with Jesus and David doesn't end with Jesus being a descendant of King David or even being an unexpected-looking uh, champion or savior. Both David and Jesus were born in Bethlehem, in David's city. David was a shepherd uh, before he became God's champion and was anointed as king. Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd of the world. Listen to this similarity. King David was announced and anointed by the prophet Samuel, and the prophet Samuel was conceived miraculously by a barren woman. Jesus was announced by John the Baptist, and John was, al John was also miraculously conceived by a barren elderly woman. This, this is an amazing uh, similarity. David was 30 when he became king. Jesus was 30 when he started his earthly ministry. David cast out demons from King Saul by playing his harp. Jesus cast out demons with the command of his word. God promised that David's offspring would establish a throne and kingdom that would last forever, speaking of Jesus. And Jesus Christ, David's offspring, has a throne and kingdom that lasts forever. Both men were beloved by God, were men after God's heart. Both men knew betrayal by close friends and associates. Both men, it says, had the power of God at work in them underneath the surface by the power of the Holy Spirit. David was the king of Israel. Jesus was the king of kings. Both men defeated their enemies. David delivered Israel from the fear of, of her enemies, and Jesus Christ delivered his followers from the fear of Satan and the evil powers of the world and of darkness and of death. The similarities go on and on if you have eyes to see them in the Scripture. And it's all very interesting but perhaps the most striking similarity between David and Jesus is that they both became God's unlikely champions, bringing victory to God's people through apparent weakness. Man looks at outward things, God looks at the heart. 
And both David and Jesus followed very careful plans to bring about their victory for God's people. Let's look at the establishing event of King David's life after he was anointed as king of Israel, his defeat of the giant Goliath as a way, as a lens of looking at what Jesus' resurrection means at the cross. Now, of course, in our imaginations, this story is very cartoony. It's a giant cartoon Goliath and a little three-year-old boy, David, with a slingshot. It's a ridiculous image we have in our mind. But the actual story is, is actually quite realistic, actually. It's not what, it's, what it has appeared to be uh, as we've kind of mulled over this in society. David was not a small, uh, small boy, and, D- and Goliath was not a 12-foot-tall monster. Um, and David was not naive in the strategy he used to take down Goliath, but it was a planned-out attack that, had, was, that was made effective. Now, Goliath was a tall man. He was 9 foot 9 inches tall. That's a big, big person. The biggest uh, person that we know on record is apparently 8 foot 11 inches but in the, in the ancient Near East where Goliath lived, they have unearthed skeletons of people that were over nine feet tall that lived around the time of Goliath. So this is not unheard of. He was an exceptionally large man, nine foot nine inches, and the other men were shorter. You know, archaeologists have shown us that the average soldier was between five and five and a half feet tall. So you think about a five foot tall guy and an almost ten foot tall guy this is where we get this feeling of a little three-year-old boy with a cartoon giant. Like, it was, it was quite, a, quite a scene and quite a contrast. But this is not a fantastic story. This is, this is a story that really happened, so we need to bring it into reality. David, in comparison to Eliath, uh, Goliath, was not, was not impressive at all. He was an average height person. Apparently, David wasn't even impressive enough among his own brothers to be chosen from a lineup to be anointed as king. So how much more uh, this average height young man standing next to Elias? Goliath. My son's name is Elias, so he's going to love this. (laughs) David and Elias. No. No, Elias, not you, David. Further, Goliath was a lifelong soldier he was apparently wearing 125 pounds of armor and had a 15-pound, um, like, weaver's rod, it says. I didn't really look into what that is. A 15-pound end on his spear. David had no armor. Truly a ridiculous sight. In our story, in uh, 1 Samuel 17, this giant warrior, Goliath, uh, is standing in a valley with the Philistine troops and the camp in the encampment of Israel, the Philistines' enemies, was right on the other side of the valley. And Goliath stands in the middle of this nine-foot-nine giant of a man and taunts God's people day after day, um, asking them to send out a champion. Goliath understood war. He understood efficiency. He said, why, why does all these people have to die in a battle? Send out your best man to fight against me, and to the victor goes the spoils. This is an, this is an idea that has been researched by archaeologists. It's called a contest of champions. 
This is something that was done around the time of David and Goliath, where there would be a representative soldier that would fight a representative soldier for victory, and then the people that lost would become uh, would be those who were overcome by the by the other army. Your best guy and our best guy. But King Saul, the Israelite king, who was fading as king, who God had taken his favor from um, for a variety of reasons, Saul cowered as Goliath called out day after day. Now Saul, the scriptures say, was, I think it says, shoulders above, shoulders above? Um, he, he, was, he was taller than all the other people in Israel. He was a tall guy. And he was a warrior. Saul had armor. Perhaps he could look somewhat impressive, even next to uh, Goliath. But King Saul would not come out and fight. He was too scared. But David, the shepherd, the one that was overlooked by even Samuel when he was anointed as king among his brothers, was coming to bring provisions to his brothers in the battlefield. And young David heard Goliath's defiance of Israel and Israel's God. And he took note of it. And he decides to go before this giant carrying only a staff and covertly a sling. And David declares that he will defeat the Philistine champion and make it known that the God of Israel is the one true God. When David comes before King Saul and he's called into King Saul's tent to discuss the possibility of him standing in front as Israel's champion, Saul objects to David's offer saying, you're only a young man. And Goliath has been a warrior from his youth. Now Saul's assessment of David shows his lack of perception of, of, of God's ways and God's anointed. The same lack of perception that was shown by David's father and Samuel when he was anointed as king. But David argues with Saul that he is more than capable of defeating Goliath because he has overcome many lions and dangerous animals when taking care of the sheep uh, in, in a hand-to-paw combat, if you will. He says that he has, he has fought off lots of uh, predators. So Saul finally says, well, okay, we'll give you a shot. And he puts his armor on David. And David cannot really move in this armor. He can't, he can't get around it. He's not used to it. So he rejects this offer. Plus, it doesn't fit in with David's strategy. You see, unbeknownst to Saul and everybody else, David had a real and concrete strategy to win this fight. And it wasn't, it wasn't just trust in God and, and go out there. He had a real military strategy. Something you never heard about in Sunday school class. You see, in ancient warfare, there were basically three divisions of the army. You had the cavalry, the infantry, and the artillery. Cavalry were soldiers on horses. Uh, infantry were men with swords and armor like Goliath, fighting men. And the artillery were people that shot arrows or slingers, people that slung uh, heavy objects at people. And while we all understand the deadliness of archers, you know, you see, you see an army coming and the archers take out the first row of people in a battle, Equally renowned at the time of David were the slingers. It was written about in history that they've, they've unearthed. 
um, about the dead accuracy of people that used slingshots in battle as artillery. So ancient warfare was kind of like a game of rock, paper, scissors. When, when in formation, the infantry could take out the cavalry with their pikes on the horses. Cavalry could take out artillery by their speed, which made them hard to hit. And the artillery, or the slingers, like David is, were the most effective against the infantry. In other words, instead of rock beating scissors, scissors beating paper, and paper beating rock, in ancient warfare, the infantry beats the cavalry, the cavalry beats, beats the slingers, and the slingers beat the infantry. In other words, David has an ingenious plan. So while he kind of sold Saul and his ability to fight hand-to-hand combat, his real intention was to use his deadly accurate slingshot, which he practiced with, to take down the giant. He was going to use his skill in the battle. And if you look really closely, you can see how this is the truth of the passage. Look how David approaches Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. He took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, and put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag. And with his sling in his other hand, he approached the Philistine. And Goliath does not see the sling. He says, mockingly to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? All Goliath saw was a boy holding a, holding a staff. So Goliath mocks his look. He doesn't look like a soldier. He has no armor. Goliath is looking at outward appearances. But David has a plan. Goliath curses David with the names of his gods, but David replies, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of it into your hands. So with Goliath's guard down after making this boast about what he would do, David then expertly, and one could almost imagine effortlessly, takes his opponent down. The battle is the Lord's battle, but David is an experienced slinger. So just as in the case of wild animals going after the sheep, David hits his mark perfectly as planned, and Goliath falls down on his face. David has not come at Goliath with a stick, as Goliath thought. David came with a sling and a stone, and artillery beats infantry every time, like rock beats scissors. So the so, it says the stone sunk into Goliath's head with great force, David's plan. And after the giant falls, just in case he's simply stunned and to fulfill the word that he had given, David, for good measure, takes the giant's sword, cuts off his head to make sure he's really dead. And following this battle with our unlikely champion David, the Philistines flee and the Israelites pursue them and win the battle. David the supposed underdog, wins the battle. He's the champion of Israel. King Jesus is the descendant son of King David and follows David's pattern perfectly. He is the rightful king of the world who has done battle with the ruler of the kingdom of the air, with Satan and with the dark powers of the world, and has been victorious. The cross was not haphazard. It wasn't plan B or plan C. It was not left to chance any more than David's victory against Goliath was left to chance. God knew 
the outcome from the beginning. In fact, it says in Revelation 13.8 that Jesus was slain before the foundations of the world. Talk about strategy. God had a strategy like David had a strategy in sending Jesus. You see, sin and brokenness entered God's world very, very early. When Satan, the serpent, is being judged by God in Genesis after Satan had led Adam and Eve into sin and disobedience, God says this really interesting phrase to Satan. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. So here God is prophesying all the way back in Genesis at the first sign of sin about a coming champion of the human race, a descendant of Adam and Eve who come into the world and crush the head of evil, even while being struck and mortally wounded, as we know Jesus was. Jesus is the champion spoken, spoken about in this early text in Genesis. And the cross was a culmination of the story of Israel and of our story as well. Here we see, we see in, the, in the cross Satan using a variety of human agents. Greg talked about this a few weeks ago. Known collectively as evil men, as evil people. Putting Jesus Christ to death on the cross. And it appears that the enemy has won. You know, Jesus actually died on Good Friday. And was buried for three days. But just, this is God's ways. This is how God works. It's just like our God to have a plan to accomplish his purposes in an unlikely way, just as he did when King David slayed Goliath. Jesus was the champion of the human race, just as David was the champion of Israel. And we get to enjoy Jesus' victory just like the army got to enjoy David's victory without lifting a finger, because Jesus has won it for us as our champion. Let's read from John uh, 19. 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, so the scripture would be fulfilled, listen to the way this is spoken. Knowing that everything had been finished, so that the scripture would be fulfilled, this is not haphazard, this is a plan. Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Quote, not one of his bones will be broken. Strategy. Plan in God's heart. Not one of his bones will be broken. And another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders, with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. 
He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 70 pounds, 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid, because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Early on the, next, the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. This is John's way of talking about himself in the story. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord... And she told them what he had said, these things, to her. Artillery beats infantry. God made a plan from the beginning when sin first entered into the world to provide for humankind a champion who would fight for us, for poor, poor helpless us. None of us can face evil, this giant who is crafty and experienced in his craft. But what we couldn't do, Jesus did. Jesus is our champion. Jesus, the underdog of the fight, executed a careful plan God had made from the beginning. And Jesus is also our champion and our representative. And Jesus took on evil with all of its many faces, and he prevailed. By God's plan, Jesus handed himself over to be crucified. It says in Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In Colossians 2, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. 
as we saw on Friday, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. So against all odds, Jesus, a man who didn't look like anything special, who was confused for a gardener by one of his closest friends in the tomb, was killed by the collective evil of the world that he came to save. The enemy was Satan, sin and death, and all of its representatives, the political and the religious leaders of the day, and all the sin the world could muster, including my sin and your sin, including our sin. The enemy was fully, fully revealed in all of its darkness and evil, and it was cosmic in nature. And Jesus Christ, by God's careful plan, allowed himself to be arrested, beaten, slandered, unjustly accused, sentenced, and executed. And then Jesus died on the cross which represented all the evil powers of the world combined. He was crucified, he died, was pierced with a spear in his side, then taken down from the cross and buried in a tomb. And then on Easter, the resurrection. Up from the grave, Jesus arose, our champion, imparting his victory to anyone who will look to his victory for them in faith. Just like all of Israel won the battle against the Philistines when their one champion, David, came and defeated Goliath. So anyone who looks to Jesus' triumph over death on the cross wins and receives from God's champion eternal life and life abundantly. This is God's way. None of us are able to stand and defeat sin on our own. There's no amount of self-help. There's no amount of, there's no amount of anything that can, keep, that can tear us apart from the sin that we have committed to in our hearts. Um, there's nothing that can be done. We need a champion to set us free. And that goes for your sins as far as the, the, the ledger I get that uh, you've sinned against God, that goes for the sins that you're entangled with right now in your life, that goes for the captivity and the bondage you're experiencing in your life. Jesus is your champion, no matter what you're going through. Just like the song says, Jesus is your champion. And anyone you trust in Jesus' victory on the cross will have ev- everlasting life and victory in their life. Not just in their salvation, but, but Jesus is for us. He is our champion. He's fighting for us um, and working in our lives. So as the worship team comes, I wanted to read um, what Paul said in Galatians 2.20, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus is our champion. He is risen. And that means the victory is ours if we identify with Jesus and accept it by faith. It's a victory that we could never win on our own. But Jesus stood for us as evil taunted us and called out to us. Jesus stood up for us, fought for us, and now hands us his victory and all that that entails. Everlasting life, abundant life, life to the full. Whatever we're going through, he is our champion.
possible this morning that some of you have not put your faith in God's champion, Jesus Christ. And you need to know this morning, there is no way to save yourself from your sins. We need a champion. We need Jesus to fight evil for us, to make a way for us to come to the Father. So if you have not put your faith in Jesus as the Son of God, the true Son of David, the champion of the world, this is a time to put your faith in Jesus and trust in his battle on your behalf, his death, his burial, his resurrection for you. For others of you who have been following Jesus for a while, you know, in what, in what ways have you begun to live your life where you just take care of everything? In what way do you need Jesus to be your champion this morning? To champion for you in an area of your life where you are stuck, where you cannot get free. A relationship or a personal problem or issue. Um, something in your life that needs overcoming. It's time to begin to trust God as our champion. How, how much if he did not spare his own son for us, how much will he not also give us all things? So this morning, um, trusting in God's generosity in Christ, that he is the champion that you need, both for your salvation and for your life. Um, turn to him this morning. And as you celebrate Easter with your families and friends and your households, just remember this. Jesus is your champion. Trust in God. Trust also in him. Trust also in him, for he is risen. You are dispersed. Go and be the church. God bless you. Happy Easter.